What in the world makes us so embarrassed about the gospel? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everyone has a worldview that motivates them. This stems from what one chooses to hope or trust in. The American dream is a pervasive one, promising that hard work and endurance will grant wealth and success. For the high school student, if they get good grades and top test scores, they'll be admitted to the college of their choice. For the working class, if they're disciplined and responsible, they will get promoted. However, what happens when that worldview comes crashing down? When the student is rejected by their top choice school? When the employee, rather than getting the promotion, gets let go due to budget cuts? Is there a hope that overcomes the unreliable and frail worldview man mistakenly trusts in? In today's message, we look to John 16 as John MacArthur explains why, in every circumstance, Jesus Christ says, take courage, for there is an unshakable hope that overcomes the instability of this world. I want you to open your Bible now this morning to John's Gospel. We have been for months and months in a very, very important section of the Bible, a very important section of this Gospel, chapters 13 through 16. We now come to the final portion of that section, John 16, 25 through 33. And we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 33, and I will confess to you that this could be stretched out for weeks, but I, uh, I'm going to condense it so that we can move on to chapter 17. Before we look at the text itself, starting in verse 25, just a, a kind of a setup, if I might, for just a few minutes. The world in which we live obviously is bleak and filled with fearful people who are struggling to make some sense out of life. Their fears are personal, private, individual, but they're also collective. It's not enough that we have the trouble of our own, but thanks to the media, we have everybody else's troubles also to carry. There is a massive accumulated deposit of saturated issues that every person has to face. At the same time, we find ourselves struggling to face them because we are so bad at relationships, so we lack real support. Trying to secure a meaningful, lasting relationship in marriage seems well-nigh impossible. Families are full of chaos and disintegration. Add to this decades and decades of propagating self-esteem and pride, and what you have is people who are consumed with their own desires and their own wants who then double down on the impossibility of making meaningful relationships because they're so self-centered. The more materialistic a culture is, the more this becomes a reality. The more things we possess, the more things occupy us, the less significant our relationships become. If you live in an isolated part of the world where you have nothing but family, family takes on a completely greater significance. 
There is a kind of pervasive angst in our culture. Even in the midst of all this material prosperity and all of this supposed freedom, we are engulfed in fears and anxieties and doubts and questions, and there is a kind of cosmic dread that looms in the lives of people in this part of the world and this time in history. People are searching for things that give them meaning, desperately searching, while consumed with selfishness and self-consumption, they find themselves unable to be satisfied, to be at peace, and to have any lasting joy. Now let me simplify it. Deep in the heart of all people is a need for three realities. This is the irreducible minimum, three realities. At the same time, it is the requisite maximum. There are three things people need. They need love. They need to be loved unconditionally. They need to be loved lavishly. They need to be loved generously, and they need to be loved by someone who knows all their faults and still loves them that way. Secondly, they need someone to trust, someone to believe in, someone who's consumed with their well-being, someone into whose hands they can place their lives, who is powerful enough and generous enough and has the resources to secure them in the midst of an insecure world. They need someone to love them and someone to care for them, who has the power to rescue them from all their troubles. Thirdly, people need hope. They need to know there's a future. They need to be able to see the light at the end of the ever-darkening tunnel, to know that someone has a plan and someone has a purpose, and somewhere in the future something good is going to happen and it's going to be far greater than any of the bad experiences that occupy our lives. Love, faith, and hope. Someone to love you, someone you can trust to care for you, to rescue you, to deliver you, to lift you above your problems, and someone to give you a future. Love, faith, and hope. Sound familiar? That's the Christian triad. That's what is offered to every person in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 13 says there are these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Often the Apostle Paul refers to that triad a couple of times in 1 Thessalonians, again in Colossians and elsewhere. Those three divine provisions that come to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are essentially what we need to live life with peace and joy. Peace is the sort of negative side. It's the tranquility. It's the absence of angst. It's the absence of anxiety. It's the tranquility in the midst of the trouble. Joy is the positive side. It's the exuberance in spite of it. Peace and joy come from these three realities. Now as we come to this text, our Lord is going to say the last few words to His eleven disciples. The words that He gave them on that Thursday night of Passion Week, the night before His crucifixion, started in chapter 13 and they've run all the way now to the end of chapter 16. Very long, long, drawn-out discourse by our Lord. He's made them all kinds of promises, given them all kinds of warnings. It all sort of culminates in their mind. 
in the reality that He keeps talking about dying and leaving, and they are full of concern and full of anxiety. While He has been with them, they've had someone to love them. While He's been with them, they had someone to believe in who has delivered them from every issue and provided everything they need. While He has been with them, He has filled their lives with hope. But now He's leaving. He's dying and He's leaving. In addition to that, He has told them, you're going to be persecuted the same way I'm being persecuted. You're going to be hated, resented, rejected, and this is going to go on through all of human history to all the followers of Christ. People are going to arrest you. He says in Luke 21, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to turn against you, brother against brother, family against family members. The society is going to turn against you. Ultimately, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue, he says earlier in chapter 16 here, and, and they're even going to kill you and think they do God's service when they kill you. It's not going to go well for you. Why are they going to hate you? Because they hate me. Why are they going to hate you? Because you're not part of the world system and they resent those who aren't. Why are they going to hate you? Because they don't know God and they're the subjects of Satan. This is a bleak kind of moment for the disciples. Jesus is dying, He is leaving, and it's going to get far worse for us. So as He closes out this evening, by now it's in the early hours of Friday morning, past midnight, the day of His crucifixion. They're headed for the Garden of Gethsemane, a final prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. Then comes the arrest, the trial in the darkness of night, and then His execution in the morning on the cross. It's all coming to an end, and they are profoundly troubled. Several times in this text, John notes that their hearts were deeply troubled. So as our Lord closes in verses 25 to 33, He offers them comfort. And the comfort He offers them is built around these three realities. You have one who loves you, you have one who can be trusted with your life in time and eternity, and you have one who has planned a hope for you. Faith, hope, and love then dominate this final section. You wouldn't necessarily see that until you dig down a little bit into the text. So let's begin by reading it, starting in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, You do believe now. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave Me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with Me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. 
I have overcome the world. How do you have peace in the face of all of this? How do you have peace in the face of Jesus dying, leaving? How do you have peace in the face of persecution and even execution, martyrdom? Let's start at the end. Go to verse 33. The last statement, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. We'll stop right there. Take courage. In the world you have tribulation. What does world mean? Well, we've already looked at that. World doesn't mean the physical planet. It means the system of evil that dominates the creation and dominates humanity. It is the satanically operated, demonically infested, sinner-exercised world of evil. It is the complex of evil that dominates human life and has not only dominated human life but cursed the entire universe. So you just need to be reminded that's where you live. You live in a system of evil. Evil dominates the world. The world is ruled by Satan. He's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, which is just another term for sinners. It's a satanically operating demon-infested world of sinners who practice the wretchedness that the fall has produced. You're in that world. And in the world, you have tribulation. The word is thlipsis. It means essentially pressure, uh, affliction, distress. You're literally going to be crushed. You're going to be pressured. You're going to be in a pressure cooker. You're going to be in distress. You're going to be under duress. This is clear from earlier words, chapter 15, chapter 16. The world hates you. It is hostile toward you. The Apostle Paul acknowledged this later to Christian believers in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. He says, "'No one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. We are destined for persecution, destined for affliction. We're not surprised by that as Christians. All that will live godly in this present age will suffer persecution, the New Testament says. First Peter 5, 9, Peter says, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. We expect the world to persecute Christians because they persecuted Christ even to kill Christians because they killed Christ. They hate us because we're not of the world and they don't know God. So in the face of this, in the face of this world of tribulation that these men are looking at, how do they survive triumphantly? How do they get through? To what do they cling? Well, our Lord says this. Go down to verse 33 again. Take courage. Take courage. Now that seems like kind of a kind of a weak response, doesn't it? Maybe some kind of a pep talk. You probably have had people tell you in the midst of your worst fears and anxieties and disappointments and distress and trouble, and somebody says, take courage. And sometimes you want to whack them 
as if they don't even understand the depth of your problem with such a superficial answer. What do you mean? It's a lot more complicated than that. Buck up, buddy, you know, that's not going to work. And there's a reason that's not going to work when you say it, because you have absolutely no power over the circumstances, right? It's a nice gesture, cheer up, but you have no power over the circumstances. But there is one who does. When Jesus says, take courage, that's a different issue. There's quite a remarkable use of the word here. It's one word, take courage or cheer up, is one word, tharsete, one word in the Greek. It's a verb form, and it's in the imperative. It's a command, okay? Listen to this. Every time that word is used, and it's used many times in the Gospels and the New Testament, every time that word is used in the New Testament, it is in the imperative. It is a command, cheer up, take courage. Now listen to this, every time it is used in the New Testament, it is spoken by Jesus. No one else ever says that in the New Testament. That is a whole different issue. If the Lord Jesus, who is in control of absolutely everything, says, cheer up, that's different. That's completely different. This is not just a well-intentioned pep talk. On the other hand, this is an absolutely divine promise. The disciples are distressed, to put it mildly. They're afflicted. They're pressured. They don't know how they're going to survive without Christ. He's all they've known for three years. And our Lord says to them, cheer up. I'm going to tell you three things that should bring you joy. One, you are loved by God. Two, you are in God's everlasting care. Three, God has a promise for your future. You have love, you have faith, and you have hope. You are loved by God. You believe in God. You hope in God. That's all you need, to be loved by God to be entrusted into God's eternal care, and to have Him promise you a glorious future is all you need. And I would just say to you this, that this is what every human on the planet needs. Why do people not run to Christ so they can have one who loves them, who is the sovereign of the universe, one in whom they can trust their lives, who is all-powerful, and one who gives them a future and a hope, who literally controls the future. Why don't they run to Him? Simple answer, they love their sin. They love their sin. But for those who come to Him, He provides all that we need. To know you're loved by God, to know you're cared for by God. He's taken the trust that you've given Him by believing in Him, and He will hold you and keep you forever, and to know He has a hope for you, and He's in control of all things in the universe. That takes all the anxiety out of life. I can just tell you, I don't think there's a minute in my life where I don't have a, a tranquil peace and a sense of joy because of these things, no matter what else is happening around me, and a whole lot is very often, 
peace of soul comes from love and faith and hope. Well, let's look at love. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf." Now let me just tell you simply what this means. These things, what do you mean these things? Everything He said to them, not just the previous paragraph, not just that night, but all the things He had been saying to them all along in three years of teaching and instruction, it was all about the Father. It's all about the Father. At the end of verse 25, it's all of the Father. He's been revealing God. He's been revealing God. I and the Father are one. I do the Father's will. I only do what the Father shows me to do, wills for me to do, tells me to do. He revealed the Father. God is revealed in Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him is the very wisdom and truth of God personified, John 1.14. So everything He ever said was to reveal the Father, to reveal God. But all of it was in figurative language. That's how the NAS translates it. Some translators say in parables, some say in allegories. None of these words are really good. Figurative language is, is probably close. The word is paroimia in the Greek, and it basically means a veiled statement, a pointed but veiled statement. That is, a statement that brings some light but still has some darkness. In other words, throughout His entire ministry, the Hebrew word is He spoke in mashal, mashal. Mashal is a veiled but pointed statement. Jesus spoke about being the light. He spoke about being water. He, he spoke about being bread. He spoke about the temple and His body. He spoke about eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. And even though there was some light in all of this, there was darkness surrounding it. There was a, there was a veil over this. And now He's talking about dying and rising and leaving. Now there was enough truth in everything Jesus taught to remove any excuse for not, not believing in Him. There was enough truth in what He taught to know that He was God, He was the Savior, He was the Messiah, and why He had come. But there was not always enough to, to understand everything. And He was speaking in veiled language because there were things that hadn't happened that He couldn't fully explain. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit. He had said a lot of things about the Father, but there was still a veil. It had all been veiled. It wasn't a full explanation. It wasn't just because things hadn't happened, so they were not able to be explained. It was also because they were thick-headed. They had a hard time getting it, even what He did say. They were very reluctant to believe He would die and leave because they thought He was going to bring the kingdom, and they had all their personal ambition tied to that. They didn't want Him to die. They didn't want Him to leave. That was not in the plan. 
And so they created something of their own veil, and then they were also veiled by years and years of instruction in Judaism that was an apostate form of Judaism that had created these expectations but had failed to instruct them on the necessity of Messiah suffering and dying and rising again. So at the present, they're, they're not clear on a lot of things. Chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. You, you, I can't go any further. We're going to have to get on the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection, and with the coming of the Holy Spirit before you're going to fully understand. You can, you can realize this. If, if you were in their situation, you have no New Testament and the cross hasn't happened, and the resurrection hasn't happened, and the Holy Spirit hasn't come, and you're trying to interpret all the things Jesus is saying in the light of what has not happened. But, he says, verse 25, an hour is coming, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. What hour is that? What hour is that? Well, you say it could be after the resurrection when He met them on the Maus Road and met them in the upper room and explained the Old Testament to them, Luke 24. It could be the forty days um, between His resurrection and His ascension when He spoke to them of things concerning the kingdom of God. But the, but the best and most complete explanation of the hour is coming is the hour when the Holy Spirit is sent. We already know that He's promised the Holy Spirit, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and always identified Him as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth will remove the veil. An hour is coming. In verse 26, it's called, in that day. In verse 23, it's called, in that day. That day, that day, that hour when the Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost, when the age of the Holy Spirit is launched. In the coming age, the veil comes off, the mysteries disappear, the mashals are over. Now think of it this way. Jesus spoke in veiled language. Jesus spoke in parables, right? And parables hid truth uh, from, from people who didn't get an explanation as a judgment. Parables had to be explained to the disciples. Jesus used parables. It was part of His initial instruction. This interesting fact you need to know. No one in the rest of the New Testament from the end of the Gospels, no one else ever gives a parable in the entire New Testament. No one. They're all direct, straightforward, simple, propositional statements of truth. The veil is off. Everything is unveiled. after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in the life of a believer and be a teacher, and the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of the New Testament where all the veils are removed so that we have the book of Acts all the way through the book of Revelation to explain everything that Jesus introduced in the Gospels. So the hour is coming, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. That will be the Holy Spirit who, remember, is the Spirit of Christ. Christ comes back in the Spirit of Christ. This is the mystery of the Trinity. 
If you would like more information about the Ministry of Grace to you or to access our vast library of resources, visit our website, gty.org. We can also be reached by phone at 888-57-GRACE or email at letters at gty.org. To correspond through mail, our address is P.O. Box 4000, Panorama City, California 91412. Thank you for joining us today. We're thankful for your continued partnership, which allows us to advance our mission of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time.